Thanks, Felicia. Good morning. It's so wonderful to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, before we start, a couple of admin things. For those of you who have been following the sermon schedule, you notice that I have changed the sermon title. Uh, just, it's not that there's a change in the, in the topic. I just thought I'd change the title so that it better reflects the direction we're going this morning. Also, you noticed in the ministry guide that I've included the whole passage inside the ministry guide for today. Um, the passage is, has a number of big words, so I just put it in there in case you want to write directly on it and make notes directly on the page. Before we carry on, maybe I can open us in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, even as we um, come before your word this morning as a gathered church, we remember those from our midst who are currently serving in the mission trip at Poa, who are also with uh, the, the gathered church over there, uh, coming before your word. And it's such a wonderful reminder that no matter where we are, you are the same and your word stays the same and your word gives power and life and confidence and hope and assurance for all of us. So this morning as we come before your word, may your Holy Spirit open up the words, write it in our hearts that we may see Christ that we may become more like you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to start with a question. How did you get to church this morning? How did you get to church this morning? For my family, uh, it usually means getting into the car. They get in, I, I get in the driver's seat. They get into the passenger seat. And they depend on me to get all of us to church on time, safely, in one piece. <laughs> For some of us, it means getting on the bus and trusting the bus driver to get you to the next bus stop all in one piece. For some of us, it means getting on the MRT and depending on which line it is, trusting in the driver or the sensor or the engineer behind the sensor to have done their job well so that you reach your destination safely. And, and that's the reason I'm talking about this is that's what dependence means. Dependence means to be reliant on someone or something to put your life or part of your life in the hands of someone else. So for my family, my family depends on me. If I speed or drive recklessly and get into an accident, my family is depending on me. They could be injured or worse, and their, their lives are literally in my hands. The, the point I'm driving at is all of us are always depending on someone in one way or other, it could be someone else, or, it could be get, or we could be depending on ourselves. We are always depending on someone to get us to where we want to go to, or to get what we want to achieve. You see, before we ask the question for this morning, which is, who are we depending on? We have to start with the question, where do we want to go? What do we really want? And the thing is, even if you think about what we want, what God says is, regardless of what we think we want, Regardless of whatever it is we think we want, behind that desire, deeper down, what all of us really want, and this is what God says, is we want to be righteous, even when we don't realize it. But what does it mean to be righteous? So the word righteousness is one of those Christian words that you hear bandied about in so many Christian meetings, but it actually could mean different things in different parts of the Bible. And in our passage for today, some of us would have already noticed it's used in our passage four times. Twice in verses 21 to 22, and twice in verses 25 to 26. And the way that the word righteousness is used 
in 21 or 22 and 25 or 26 is actually different. And so we're going to start by focusing on the first meaning, the way righteousness is used in verses 21 to 22. And this is what it means. In verses 21 to 22 of Romans 3, the righteousness of God refers to the status of being made right with God. The status of being made right with God. And this status is a legal one. In court, when you go before the judge, you declare your status as being guilt, either being innocent or guilty. Innocent or guilty. And righteousness is the same. To be declared righteous means to have the status of being declared right with God. You've been declared innocent, sinless, completely free of having committed any sin. But here's the flip side. We are either righteous or unrighteous. As long as we have committed any sin, we are considered unrighteous. We are no longer innocent but guilty. We are no longer right with God. And what the Bible says is that all of us want to be right with God even when we don't realize it. Let me just go through three examples in Proverbs that reflect our desire for righteousness. These examples talk about a fear of death, an instinct to pray and be close to God, and a need for confidence in our life. So firstly, Proverbs 12 verse 28, in the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. Everyone, everyone, even if they pretend like they don't, wants to know where we're going after we die. And this is why every religion and culture over all of time across the world always has something to say about life after death. Every culture, every religion, or every non-religion has some theory of how to get on this pathway to life, how, to, how a person can be made right with the person, with the God, with the being, with the power, in control of life and death. And we all want to know where we're going after we die because God has created us like that. He has created us with eternity in our hearts. We want to know where we go after we die because there's something in us that tells us, that reminds us, this is not all. We were created not just for this life, but for something after this life. So first one, first example that reminds us of our need for righteousness is a fear of death. The second one, Proverbs 15, verse 29. The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayer of the righteous. What many of us do, even if we don't consider ourselves religious, is we pray. If you just go on social media, every time there's a big crisis that happens, what is it that people always say? Sending up hopes and prayers for you. And, and this is what often happens, especially out of desperation in a crisis, many of us, even if we profess not to be religious, we can't help but cry out to someone or something to save us. But increasingly as well, it's not just out of a desperation during a crisis. We pray out of a desire for peace. Which of us doesn't have a friend and more and more friends who are practicing meditation? Or, or at least just getting more and more interested and involved in spiritual activities, things of spirituality. And why is this happening? This is happening because even as our society professes to be less and less religious, we still want to be involved in things of spirituality because prayer is an instinct that all of us have. We were all made to pray. We were all made 
to connect with the supernatural, to encounter and to be close with God. And that's what, just what prayer is. And this instinct, again, points us to this deep desire that we have for righteousness because as, this, as our verse in Proverbs says, God hears the prayer of and is close to the righteous, but is far from the wicked. And lastly, Proverbs 28, verse 1, the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. You see, there's something about being righteous, about being right with God that makes us bold, that empowers us, gives us permission to live a life with confidence. And that's because to be righteous, to be right with God, as I've said earlier, is what we were all created for. And those of us who live right with God, who, are, who have been declared righteous, who have been declared right with God, we can live boldly because we're living with the freedom and confidence that simply comes from living the life that we were created to do. Now, these are just three examples and there are many more, but the point is that we were all created, we, we all want to be right with God because we were all created to be right. That's what we were created for. We were all created to be right with God. It's not just something we want, but something we were meant, we are meant for even when we don't realize it. And until we are made right with God, as all of us have felt before, we'll be feeling the signs and symptoms and struggles of just not being right with Him. Because none of us is righteous. None of us is right with God. And that's just a simple summary of everything we've covered in the previous chapters and verses in Romans. It's like all of us are defendant in court before the judge, and Paul has been building his case against us. And his, he reaches his conclusion in 3 verse 10, which Ian went through with us last week. None is righteous. No, not one. And when he says it, he makes this bold declaration, this summary of his entire argument. It, it seems like all hope is lost because he's, he's talked about everything that man has ever tried to do to be right with God. And he says, but none is righteous. No, not one. All hope is lost. None of us can be saved. That is until we get to the first two words of our passage for this morning. If you just look in your Bibles, what does it say? It says, but now. But, now, no one is righteous, no, not one, but, now. And but now opens our passage for this morning, 3 verses 21 to 26, the passage that theologians and scholars and everyday non-scholars have said that is the most important passage in the whole Bible. Martin Luther himself describes this passage that we're going through this morning as the chief point and the very central place of Romans and of the whole Bible. So no pressure, Sam. There are two points in our passage for this morning. Firstly, all of us can only be made right with God, but only by completely depending on Jesus Christ, though none of us deserve it. So, our passage is a little difficult to understand. It's got a number of big words that we don't use in everyday speech. So if it's okay, I'm just going to take some time for us to just go through this line by line. And as I go through the passage, I want us to try and keep the big idea of the passage at the back of our minds, okay? As we go through it, remember the direction we're heading to. All of us can only be made right with God by completely depending on Jesus, even though none of us deserve it. So let's dig in. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart 
from the law. Throughout the Old Testament, the status of becoming righteous or being right with God always had one criteria, to perfectly keep God's laws that He lists for us in the Old Testament. But now, this is what the passage is saying, but now God has shown us, and that's what manifested means. It means He has shown us a way to be righteous, to be right with Him. It's apart from the law because we are not the ones obeying the law. Jesus is the one obeying the law for us on our behalf. Next line. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the Old Testament points to this truth, that one day we could be made righteous, declared righteous apart from the law. Verse 22. The law and the prophets bear witness to the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. As I mentioned just now, we are made right with God not by keeping the law ourselves, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Putting, and, and, and putting faith in Jesus means to completely depend on Him, trusting and living our lives based on what God has said. So just now, we, we, I asked the question, how do we get to church this morning? How do we get to church this morning? For those of us who took the car, to get to church, we needed to get in the car. We can spend lots of time finding out more about the quality of the car, the reliability of the driver, and the safety of the roads. But until we get into the car, we will not get to church. And that's exactly what faith is. Faith is getting into the car. Many of us do, we have, and we really should spend time finding out more about the claims of Christianity, whether it's true, whether it's right, whether it resonates with us. Whether, whether the Bible is reliable, whether the gospel is true, all these things, we need to spend time asking more and more questions. But until, but at the end of the day, we need to decide, are we going to get into the car or not? We need to decide whether we want to put our faith in Christ, to depend on Him, put, to put our lives and our salvation in His hands or not. You can't be in the car halfway. Well, you can, but that's you're either in it or you're out of it. We, are either, we have either put our faith in Christ or we have not. You can be in the car and you can be terrified and constantly complaining. Like when I first got my license and I took my parents out for a ride, you can be holding on for dear life, but you can be in the car in different states. You can be out of the car in different states, but at the end of the day, it's a yes or no. We're either in the car or we're out of the car. We either have put our faith in God and dependent on Him and put our salvation in His hands, or we have not. Moving on. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The famous verse, one of the famous verses, and it's just a summary of our previous chapters. No one is perfect, everyone is a sinner. And because none of us is righteous, all of us fall short of the glory of God because the glory of God, and glory just means to God's essence, who He is, His character, God's essence demands perfection. And, and if you think about it, we should be glad that God's glory demands perfection because think of the, think of the counterpoint. If He's not perfect, that will make Him imperfect. And which one of us would want to submit our lives to depend on a God who is less than perfect, who is less than holy. And so the point here is that I could be a good person, I could be a very good person, 
but I will always fall short of perfection that God demands. And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Okay, let me, let me try and unpack some of, the, some of the words here for us, okay? To be justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared right with God. It's the act that changes a person's status from unrighteous to righteous. The same way that a judge, in his verdict, he declares you as either innocent or guilty. So the act, if, the, if you go in as a guilty person and the, God, and the, and the judge declares you as, as being innocent, from guilty to innocent, that's what justified is, from unrighteous to righteous. Being the, uh, if grace is a gift, it means that for us who have been declared righteous, this, this declaration of our righteousness, we don't deserve it, we can't earn it, and it does not cost us anything. But the point is, and this is what, growing up in a church, I tend to forget, we preach grace so much, and I forget that just because it doesn't cost me anything, that doesn't mean it doesn't cost anything. So during Christmas, Jess bought me a gift. My wife, Jessica, bought me a Christmas gift. And because it was a gift, it didn't cost me anything, but it cost her something. She had to pay for it. The point is the gift is free to the receiver, but because it's only free because the giver had to pay the price of the gift. And this idea of cost is what redemption, the word redemption is drawing our attention to. So redemption means paying the price or cost of a slave so that the slave can be released from slavery. So with His sacrifice, Christ redeems us from slavery to unrighteousness. He pays the penalty of sin. He pays the cost of our sins so that we can be made righteous and released from slavery to unrighteousness to the freedom that, and confidence and boldness that righteousness can give. And this is where the word propitiation is so important. I'll be honest with you, before, before I started preparing for this sermon, I really didn't like the word propitiation. I kept forgetting what it meant. I couldn't spell it. <laughs> and I couldn't. And whenever a youth in the youth group would ask me what it meant, I would always stammer and try to get away with the explanation because I don't know how to explain it. But four dictionaries later, let me explain to you I actually was thinking of changing the word in our passage so that we could understand it better, but let me explain to you why I've kept it in, okay? Propitiation means the removal of God's anger and judgment by the offering of a sacrifice. I'll repeat that again, okay? The word propitiation means removing God's anger and judgment by the offering of a sacrifice. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it, does, it is familiar. It's actually an Old Testament reference. And if you look in Leviticus 16, if you want more information, it's actually the word that describes the sacrificial system when they, when they put the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat during the Day of Atonement. Why is this so important? This is important firstly because Jesus is a sacrifice that removed God's anger and judgment. The sacrifice in Leviticus 16 points to Jesus' sacrifice, His blood that removes God's anger and judgment against sin because Jesus takes it upon Himself. He is our substitute, taking away the anger and, righteous, and, the anger and judgment by becoming unrighteousness so that we can become righteous. 
And why is this so important? This is important because the word propitiation reminds us that God does get angry. And God does judge sin and evil. And many of us, me included, we like to downplay the idea of God getting angry. You know, when our friends ask us about Christianity, how many of us talk about, the first thing we talk about is God's anger and judgment. We, I like to focus on God's love and grace because anger seems like a scary thing. I think about the way I get angry. Sometimes it's so arbitrary. Sometimes it's so wrong. Most of the time, my, my anger is, is wrong. But just because my anger is wrong doesn't mean that God shouldn't get angry because God does get angry. There are, many, there, are some, there are some people who call themselves Christians who have started saying that there's no such thing as judgment. God is so loving, there is no such thing as hell. All of us will go to heaven in the end. But do you see what the problem with that is? Firstly, we're just ignoring what the Bible says. Jesus is the propitiation. He's the one who removes God's anger and judgment. And for it to be removed, it has to be there in the first place. That's the first thing. Secondly, if God doesn't get angry and judge sin and evil, we will have a God who we can't trust with all the unfair things that happen to us. One of the things that allows us as Christians to persevere in times of suffering and evil and sin that is committed against us is, is that we can trust a God who gets angry at sin and promises to judge every wrong thing that has ever happened to us, by us, or just to someone else. And thirdly, we need to know that God does get angry and that God does judge sin and evil because if, he, if there's no judgment, we won't see the need for Jesus. If there's no judgment, there's no need for a saviour. And if there's no need for a saviour, we will not see what's the big deal about Jesus. So, summarising where we all are, we've tried to piece together everything. Summarising where we all are, uh, yes, all of us can only be made right with God by completely depending on Jesus, though none of us deserve it. I'll repeat again, all of us can only be made right with God by completely depending on Jesus, though none of us deserve it. And the reason why I, I just put this, this slide up is because many of us, we read, we read a passage like this, a verse like this, and we think, oh, okay, heard all this before. I'm already a Christian, so nothing new. If anyone asks me what do I think, I'll just say, just a good reminder. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about Romans. We need to ask ourselves, who is Paul writing to? Who is Paul writing to? He's writing to the church in Rome. We get this, we get this in, in uh, 1 verse 7. Paul is writing to people who have joined the church. So they've already heard the gospel and they already either are Christian or they think that they're Christian. So why is Paul spending so much time? And he's, after this, you'll, you'll realize that he goes all the way till chapter 7, chapter 8, just fleshing out what is the gospel. Why does he spend so long repeating this to people who are Christian? Two reasons. Some of us can probably guess that already. Firstly, 
there were people in the church who thought they knew the gospel. Perhaps they even told themselves, told others that they were Christian. But Paul is clarifying the gospel because perhaps, just perhaps, there were some people that weren't Christian, even though they thought they were. Second, there were people who knew the message of the gospel, they understood it, but they weren't living it out. The gospel was not making any difference in their lives. And this is why Paul explains the gospel in, in chapters 1 to 8, but then from 12 to 15, 16, he spends it all on application. Because Paul says in 12 verse 2 of Romans that if we truly understand and believe the gospel, there will be transformation in our lives. So, some questions for us to ask ourselves. Firstly, have we changed? Have we been transformed? And let's just stop and think about this for a moment. Think about ourselves today and think about ourselves one year ago, six months ago, one month ago, one week ago, yesterday. Have we been transformed? Have we become more like Jesus? Just think of the two greatest commandments. Have we loved God more with everything that we have? Have we loved others more? If there has been a change, what has caused this change? Has it been the gospel? Or has it been something else? Have we changed? Second question, how do we respond when someone wrongs us, when someone does something wrong to us? Are we gracious or judgmental? Patient or angry? Quick to forgive or quick to condemn. And when I, when I look at my life, I realize that when I go through seasons of finding it difficult to forgive others or of, or of being ungracious, it's because I've often forgotten how much I've been forgiven in Christ. If you were to observe any argument I've had with Jess, and you just observe me, it's very clear when I think I'm in the right and when I think I'm in the wrong. <laughs> when I think I'm in the right, I go in all guns blazing. When I think that I'm in the wrong, I'm more humble, <laughs> quick to listen, quick to forgive, soft-spoken. See, when we receive grace from others, when we realize how we, have been, how we have been wrong, it's actually very, very difficult to be ungracious and harsh to other people as well. Jesus said it like this, it's, it's like my boss forgiving my debt that I owe to him of $1 million dollars, and then me going to my friend who owes me $10 and can't pay me back and beating him up. That's how ridiculous it, is, ridiculous it is when I realize how much I've been forgiven. Everything else is just loose change. Thirdly, how honest are we about our struggles with sin and temptation? See, if we're all sinners, if we're all dependent on Jesus to make us right with God, this actually means we don't have to be paise about sharing with others about our struggles with sin. So just think about it. How many of us in our small groups, in our CGs, when we meet up with another Christian friend and they ask us, how can I pray for you? How many of us just talk about work and sickness or school? Which, which is good. We, really, we should talk about these things. But if that's all we share about, what about our struggles with lust, anger, self-control, envy, pride, selfish ambition, hatred, bitterness, the list goes on. And if we are, if we realize 
that it is by faith that we are saved. We no longer have to put up a front. And we can be honest about what we're really struggling with with other Christians. And lastly, how do we respond when we do something wrong? How do you respond when we do something wrong? Because living by faith means that when we've done something wrong, we should feel guilt and shame for doing something wrong, but we should also have confidence and hope that God still loves us. Okay, how does this work? So when my sons do something wrong, I want them to know that they did something wrong. I want them to feel bad so that they learn to do the right thing. But here's the thing. I never want them to do the right thing in order to earn my love. I never want them to be motivated out of a desire to earn my approval and my love because they need to know, they need to have the confidence and security that I will love them no matter what they have done. I also never want them to choose not to do the wrong thing out of fear that if they did that thing, I, would, I wouldn't want them as my sons anymore. Because that's not true. I want them to do the right thing, but I also want them to know that no matter what they do, no matter how they might break my heart, I will never, ever disown them. They will always be my sons, no matter what they do. And this, my friends, is how it is with God. You see, for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, our salvation is a gift that we can never lose, the same way that there's nothing my sons can do that will cause them to lose me as their parent or lose the love that I have for them because that has nothing to do with what they do and everything to do with me and my choice and the fact that I have chosen this status. Our salvation is a gift that we can never lose because we never did anything to earn it in the first place. There's nothing that we can ever do to make God love us anymore. And if that is true, then the flip side is even, it's just as true. There's nothing we can ever do to make God love us less. But some of us may think, oh yes, but then where does, where does the idea of works come in? There's faith, but how about works? So there's a story that Tim Keller tells that I have found really helpful in understanding the difference between a life transformed in response to God's gift and a life transformed trying to earn God's gift. So there was, an, there was a gardener who grows this enormous carrot. And so after he's grown, he goes to the king and he says, My king, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown and the greatest carrot I will ever grow. So I'm giving it to you as a, as a token of my love and respect that I have for you. So the king receives the carrot and he looks into the man's heart and he, as the man turns to go, he says, wait, I see that you are a good gardener, a good steward of the earth. I own the plot of land next to yours. Let me give this plot of land to you freely as a gift that you may grow more carrots. So the gardener is overjoyed. He doesn't expect it. He's overjoyed. He's amazed and he goes home happy. So as the story goes, there's another person in the court who hears this, a nobleman. And, and this nobleman, he overhears what happens and he thinks to himself, oh my, 
if this is what the king gives for a carrot, I wonder what he gives for something better. So the next day, he goes before the king, pulling this magnificent black stallion, a horse, and he, he comes before the king and he bows before the king and he says, my king, this is the greatest black horse I have ever bred and that I ever will breed. I'm giving it to you as a token of my love and respect. The king takes the horse, looks into the nobleman's heart, and he says, thank you. You may be dismissed. So the nobleman looks puzzled, confused. And then the king says, I see you are confused. Let me, let me explain it to you. The gardener you heard yesterday was giving me the carrot. You were giving yourself the horse. The gardener teaches us what it means to live in response to God's character and gift. The nobleman shows us what it means to be living trying to earn God's character and gift. You see, every day we must ask ourselves, are we the gardener or are we the nobleman? Why am I doing what am I doing? Am I doing it out of faith in, and in response to what God has done? Or am I deep down trying to earn that little bit of approval? of love, of status from God. Faith in God means depending on God, living life in response to the gift of salvation, not living to earn our salvation. And even as we talk about this, there's another group of us who hear this message and think, you don't know what I've done. I don't deserve God's gift. And even if I, as I just said this question, how many of us think that we are part of this group, that we don't deserve God's gift? And this is the twist. The Bible says that actually we should all see ourselves as part of this group. If all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, if none of us is righteous, then we, we need to realize that none of us deserves anything from God. I, I like, it how, like how the psalmist in these two uh, verses puts it this way. Psalm 71 verses 1 to 2, "'In you, O Lord, do I take refuge.'" Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Psalm 143 verse 1, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. Did we notice? What reason does the psalmist give that God should save him? When he asks God to save him, when he pleads with God to save him, what is the reason that he gives? He appeals to God's righteousness. In your righteousness, deliver me. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness. And, and just now we spoke about there are two types, there are two meanings of righteousness here. The meaning of the word righteousness here is different from the first one. In verses 21 to 22, the righteousness of God means to, refers to the status of, that we can get of being made right with God. But in verses 25 and 26 in Romans, and as it is in this psalm, God's righteousness is a description of His character, that He will always do what is right. God's righteousness is a description of who God is, and it describes the fact that God will always do what is right. And that is what the, that's what the psalmist is saying. Save me, God, because you will always do what is right. 
You see, he doesn't talk about himself because like, like a defendant in court that knows he's done the crime, there's no, you know there's nothing in yourself worth saving. The psalmist doesn't see anything in himself worthy of being saved. And so in his desperation, he goes to God and says, God, save me, nothing to, not because of anything I have done or anything that I am, but because of who you are. He appeals to the only other person he can. He appeals to God. And this is the truth for us as well, that all of us are in the same position as the psalmist. There's nothing in us worth saving. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. The best thing that, you think, that we think we ever did, we helped that person, we led this Bible study, we thought we were growing in Christ. The, the most righteous thing, the best, most right thing we've ever done, God, the Bible says it's like a filthy rag. And, and because of that, we, like the psalmist, we, we are dependent on God's righteousness. When we come before God, we need to appeal to God God, save me because of who you are. Which brings us to the second point in this passage, which is how do we know we can depend on God? We have to depend on God because we can't depend on ourselves. But how do we know we can depend on God? And the answer is, God, we can depend on God because He is righteous. He is righteous. God's righteousness is what the psalmist appeals to, and we can depend on God because we can completely depend on God because He is righteous. So, for those of you who know football, who follow football, you will know that Chelsea Football Club in the English Premier League are not doing very well at the moment. <laughs> They've been having some bad results and the pressure has been mounting on their head coach, Maurizio Sarri. This is the man in the picture over here. So, in their game last week against Manchester United, which they lost, the, there was a turning point. The fans seemed to turn against Sari after the game and they were just booing and chanting for him to be sacked. And the, in response to that, there was an article written and its, uh, and its headline was, Sari's Chelsea future depends on mercy of Abramovich after FA Cup exit. Abramovich is the name of the owner of Chelsea and he is the one who decides whether the coach stays or the coach is fired, and things have gotten so bad, the performances, performances and results and the, and the mood and the atmosphere within the club have become so bad that the writer of this article felt there's nothing that the coach Sari can do to keep his job. He's become totally dependent, vulnerable, reliant on the patience and mercy of the owner, Roman Abramovich. Now, for those of you who know football, you would know that depending on the patience and mercy of a coach, of, of a man like Roman Abramovich, wouldn't give Sar a person in Sari's position much confidence because Roman Abramovich is known universally to be an unmerciful and impatient owner of the football club. Since buying the club in 2003, he's changed coach 14 times. He is not someone you can depend on. If you are a coach, to be merciful and patient and gracious and kind. But we thank God that God is not like that. 
You see, the second verses 25 and 26 tell us that we can completely depend on God. We can have complete confidence that He will not fire us, that He will save us because He is righteous and He will always do what is right. And we know that God is righteous because He shows that He is righteous in Christ. Some of us, as we're in, in, in the passage, you may have noticed the repeated phrase in verses 25 and 26, to show God's righteousness, to show His righteousness. See, Paul is telling us that Christ shows us that God is righteous, that He will do the right thing, by, and Paul does this by answering the age-old question, how can God be both just and merciful at the same time? How can God be both, both just and merciful at the same time? Because you think about it, trusting in God to do the right thing actually doesn't in and of itself give us a lot of confidence because if God is the, for God to do the right thing, if He is just and hates sin, that will mean that we have no hope. But it's a question because we know that God is not just just, He is also loving and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's why it says in Exodus. It also says that He doesn't forget iniquity and He punishes not just the sinner, but the following generations as well. How can God be just that He hates evil and judges sin and merciful and gracious and loving at the same time? This is what Paul is saying. God shows He can do that in Jesus at the cross God's justice and mercy meet. In Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God shows us that He is righteous because He is both just and merciful. He is just because on the cross, Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. Jesus took all the punishment that anyone is due, anyone deserves because of our sin, and He took it on the cross. So God shows that He is just every sin, every wrong thing ever done will be punished. But He also shows that He is loving and merciful because everyone who has put our faith in Jesus will be saved. All of us who have put our faith in Jesus, those who live before Jesus, and that's what verse 25 is talking about, in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It's saying that Jesus, when Jesus died, He died for the sins of those who lived before Him, but He also died for the sins of those who lived when He was around, and He's dying, He died for the sins of those who lived just like us after He went back to heaven. Everyone across all of time, all our faith, all of us who have put our faith in Jesus will be saved. And this is so important because as the psalmist said, Paul takes so much effort to show that God is righteous because if God is not righteous, we have no hope. If God is not righteous, God has neither the authority or the ability to make us right with Him. Because if God is not righteous, who is He to make us righteous? But if God is not righteous, how can we trust anything He has ever said? How can we trust that He would do, He will be consistent with His character? See, be, Paul needs to show that God is righteous because because God is righteous, He shows that He might be just 
and justifier of the one who has faith in, in Jesus. You see, because God is righteous, He can make us righteous. Because God is righteous, we know that He has made us righteous. There's a quote that I read this week that I feel really captures the, what this passage is about. When I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. Why is this so important? This is important because some of us, um, many of us, all of us, have you ever asked yourself, how can I be sure that I'm saved? If I were to just pass away right now, how can I be sure that I'm going to heaven? And we think about it and we think, okay, those who have faith in Christ are saved. And then if you're anything like me, I'll think, okay, do I have faith? But my faith is imperfect. Do I have enough faith? But the other day, I doubted. Can I still be sure? But the other day, I, I, I committed this terrible sin. My faith is imperfect. My life is imperfect. Some days I have a lot of faith. Sometimes I have, some days I have less faith. I look at myself and I, I'm not sure. Faith has become this idol almost. That I'm constantly worrying, do I have enough faith? Do I have enough faith? And this is why this passage is so important to us because faith is not looking at myself and thinking about how sure that I am. Faith is looking at Christ and seeing how sure I can be because of His righteousness. I don't look to myself. I look to God. I look to His righteousness. And because God has shown that He is righteous, I can have absolute confidence and assurance. So, um, every, every weekday after work, Jess and I, we will head home to my parents' house to pick up the kids because my parents help look after my kids. And it's, it's the same routine. Every day, we finish work, we will get in the car, we drive home, we park the car, we open the door, we get out of the car, we take off our shoes, we open the door, and we open the door to the sight of both Ezra and Josiah just running towards us. Okay, running is a generous term. Josiah running and, and, and Ezra walking as fast as he can. And they're running towards us with our arms open to give Jess a hug. Sometimes to give me a hug, but always to give Jess a hug. And there's something about the confidence and assurance that they have. They're running with their arms out open already, and they just go into her arms because they know they have this confidence from experience and I guess just childlike dependence on Jess that she will never turn them away. They don't think about what, what they've done that day. They don't think about what Jess has done that day. They see Jess and they know, they have complete confidence that she will never turn them away. And I want to end with that because that's the kind of confidence and security that we have with God in Christ. In Christ, we have been made right with God. In Christ, we see the righteousness of God that we can completely depend on to make us right with God. In Christ, we can run to God with open arms, with complete confidence that no matter what we have done, He will never 
turn us away. And may I just say, if you've, if you've not gotten into the car yet, our God is a magnificent God. We can trust Him with all the pain that we have had and will ever have and will ever inflict. But we can also trust Him to never turn us away. So if you haven't got into the car yet, why don't you get into the car today? Can we bow our heads? As we prepare for the Lord's Supper, um, God calls us to examine our hearts. Have we gotten into the car? Are we the gardener or are we the nobleman? Are we dependent on Christ or dependent on ourselves to make us right with God? I just want, I just want us to give us a couple of minutes to reflect on this, to think about these questions. You can think about the reflection questions in your handout or that I put up on the screen. Are we dependent on Christ or are we dependent on ourselves to make ourselves right with God? How have I been transformed by the gospel this week? Has dependence on Christ been my motivation for growth this week? As you continue to reflect, may I invite the stewards to come forward?